Hello and welcome to another episode of Hard Tack. I'm your host Sam and with me is my friend and co-host Mike. But today we have a special guest and friend returning with us again. Warwick, welcome. We are so glad to have you back with us. How is everyone? Oh, very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Must not have scared you off too much last time. No, definitely not. We're, thr- we're thrilled to have you here. It, it, it's great to have you back. Episode three is still one of our top episodes, and it was just fun. It, it was, was so experience. much fun. <laughs> it was fun, actually. I enjoyed that one, which is good because I don't normally like talking to people, so that was good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, introvert solidarity. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Let's get into it. Hard Tack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hard Tack. If you would like to add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on our hardtack socials found via our link tree in the episode description. You may also email us at hardtackpod at gmail.com. We're also excited to announce the launch of our website. Head over to hardtackpod.com where you can find photos from various episodes, bios about your wonderful host, outtakes, and much more. Also, please leave us a review on whichever platform you use to consume your hardtack. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you. If you are eager to learn more about Australian military history, don't forget to also check out Warwick's podcast, the Australian Military History Podcast. You can find him on Instagram at amhpodcast. We will also link his socials in the episode description and on our socials. On the 8th of February 1942, the Imperial Japanese Army commenced an attack on Singapore. With Allied forces poorly led, defences were irresponsibly focused on the least crucial parts of the island. Despite intelligence indicating the Japanese would concentrate their attack on the island's northwest, Allied leadership insisted on defending the entire coastline. The 8th Australian Division, still recovering after being weakened fighting in Malaya, was allocated the northwestern sector. These strategic errors led to the Allied retreat to Singapore City. After the retreat, the Japanese captured the main water supply and were free to bomb at will. Over 1 million civilians remained in the city, alongside 130,000 Allied soldiers, 15,000 of which were Australians. At 8.30pm on the 15th of February 1942, the Allies surrendered to the Japanese. Before we go any further, I would just like to make a special mention on behalf of my family. This episode is particularly important to me. It is important to me because my great-granduncle Harry was a part of the 15,000 captured and subsequently sent to the Santa Campio W camp in Borneo, where his fate, along with two and a half thousand was sealed by the horrific Santa Ken death marches. I hope this episode brings greater awareness to the tremendous sacrifices our boys made in the Pacific, especially events that followed after the fall of Singapore. We cannot allow this history to die with
with them. They must be remembered and honoured for everything they endured. We would not be afforded the luxuries and the life we have today without them. You're listening to Hardtack, episode 19, The Tragedy of the Sandakan Death Marches. During the 1930s, Britain built a large naval base on the north coast of Singapore so they could further project naval superiority across the Asia-Pacific. The island became a strategic center in the region, a result of which was it became the cornerstone of Australian defense strategy. However, there wouldn't be any permanent bases for British naval vessels in Singapore. The entire Singapore strategy was predicated on ships being sent from European seas in times of emergency, an improbable scenario should Britain be directly threatened. The Singapore strategy had received numerous warnings from senior Australian Army and Navy officers. Still, successive Australian governments opted to disregard them due to the expenditures associated with a more independent defense policy, which made them especially sensitive to British assurances. Ultimately, Britain could only spare a few ships for Singapore as the Japanese threat grew in late 1941. By October 1941, just two ships had arrived, the aging battlecruiser HMS Repulse and the comparatively new battleship HMS Prince of Wales. They were supposed to be accompanied by an aircraft carrier. But when it ran aground in the West Indies, it left the ships without any air support, making them extremely vulnerable. On December 10, 1941, both of the ships were sunk. With the loss of the ships, the Singapore strategy and the justification for depending Singapore were destroyed. British Commonwealth soldiers prepared for a defense that would now be conducted mostly for political reasons when they retreated to Singapore Island in January 1942. British Commonwealth forces prepared for a defense that would now be performed mostly for political reasons, arguably the most important of which would be to sustain American assistance when they withdrew onto Singapore Island in January 1942. However, there was no doubt what a purely military decision would have been, Churchill stated in his memoirs. On December 8, 1941, the Japanese made landfall on the Malayan Peninsula Peninsula, the same day as the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, on the other side of the international dateline. Midway through January, the Japanese were first confronted by the 22nd and 27th Brigades of the 8th Division of the Australian Imperial Force, or the AIF, which was located in the southern Malay province of Johor. The 2nd 30th Battalion's ambush at Gamunche on January 14, 1942 and the 4th Anti-Tank Regiment and the 2nd 29th Battalion's loss of 8 enemy tanks at Bakri were two examples of the Australians' limited success. As a result of the sinking of the HMS Prince of Wales and the Repulse, Japanese forces were able to maneuver, had air assistance, and aggressively attacked the unprepared line of defenders, frequently outflanking them. Senior commanders became alarmed and perplexed as a result, leading to a series of withdrawals down the peninsula. On January 31st, the final British Empire troops were transferred from Malaya to Singapore through the causeway. When the Japanese made their landing on the northwest coast of the island on the night of February 8th and the early morning of the night, the war for Singapore officially began. The first soldiers from the British Empire to arrive in Singapore to defend Singapore were the Australian 22nd and 27th Brigades. Although the combat was ferocious, the Allied forces had lost control of the island's reservoirs by February 15th, just a week later. The British Empire forces in Malaya were under Lieutenant General Arthur Percival's command at the time, and he agreed to the Japanese demand for a complete surrender. After the surrender, Sergeant John Neville wrote, quote, The most lasting memory of the fall of Singapore was the terrific silence following the ceasefire order, the din of firing, bombs falling and exploding, and the general noise of war had become normal to us. When it suddenly ceased, the silence seemed to hurt. One felt as though he were alone in a secluded forest glade, with all bird sounds and noises muted. End quote. Australia suffered significant defeats during the campaign. Over the course of a few weeks, several battalions lost half their strength. 
1,789 Australians lost their lives and 1,306 were injured in one of the most expensive campaigns for Australia during the Second World War. Over 880 Australians died during a single week of warfare on Singapore Island. It was one of the few campaigns where the overall death toll was higher than the overall injury toll. At the stroke of a pen, 130,000 British soldiers, including 15,000 members of the 8th Division, became prisoners of war at a wooden table in a meeting room at the Ford factory in Singapore. One of Australia's worst errors in history began with the fall of the island. 22,000 Australians, including 71 nurses from the Australian Army Nursing Service, suffered the misfortune of becoming prisoners of war over the course of seven weeks. 1,500 Australian civilians, including men, women and children, were taken prisoner or incarcerated. Family members back home would not learn of the fate or even the whereabouts of the missing soldiers until after the war was over. It was definitely a time of enormous anguish and sorrow. The tragic loss of life can be used to gauge the importance of the prisoner of war experience to Australia's Second World War history. One third of those taken prisoners did not make it out alive. Australian troops and service women lost half of their combat-related deaths during the Pacific War, and the agony of the surviving persisted long after they had returned home. Those statistics are so upsetting. Let me just... It is, isn't it? Goodness. Goodness yeah, gracious, Yeah, it, it was a significant amount. You just, you just can't imagine it really, can you? No, no. You can't, can't picture that, those sorts of numbers. The, yeah. the weight, the gravity of that is just, oh my God. Yeah, poor buggers. So before we get too far into the events at Santa Cam, I think it's probably useful to get a bit of an insight into just why the Japanese were so willing to inflict such brutality on prisoners of war. Not to excuse the atrocities, but just to understand the background. Dan Carlin gives a very good description of the evolution of the Japanese culture over the centuries, so I suggest everyone go and check out his podcast, Supernova in the Pacific. So way back in the Middle Ages, Japan was divided up into various regions run by warlords. Up until the late 1500s, they were quite content making war on each other while maintaining relationships with the outside world particularly China and what is now Korea, but they also had dealings with some European countries. Then in the 1500s, a powerful warlord named Toyotomi Hodiyoshi united all of Japan, but he wasn't satisfied with this and he wanted to build an empire. Between 1592 and 1598, he led invasions against Korea and into China, and ultimately he was defeated. This led to the end of Hideyoshi's reign, and a new era, known as the Edo era, came in with the Tokugawa shogunate taking control. Many changes took place, but for our purpose, the main change was that the Tokugawa basically cut Japan off from the rest of the world, and it wasn't until 1868 that they re-entered the world community. But by that time, the rest of the world had gone through the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution. When Japan emerged from the Edo era, it still possessed a largely medieval mindset that everybody else had moved on from. So back in the medieval times, rape, pillage and plunder were considered normal aspects of warfare. There were some basic rules, such as if a town or a castle surrendered without a fight, the townsfolk and defenders would be allowed to leave unmolested. But if they resisted, then all bets were off and no mercy was owed to the enemy. And that's the basic mindset of the Japanese military and Japanese society at the outbreak of war. Dan Carlin also puts it like this, Japanese people of the early 1900s are just like everybody else, only more so. Everyone was nationalistic, the Japanese were just more so. Everyone committed small acts of savagery in war, the Japanese just more so. So that, in a nutshell, is why Japanese soldiers felt that it was not just okay to commit acts of savagery, but was actually a part of their military doctrine and why prisoners of war deserve to be shown no mercy. So with that out of the way, and as a way of providing some context as to just how atrocious the acts at Sandakan were, we'll just take a few minutes to talk about what other POWs were subjected to. And we'll do this by looking at something that most of us have at least heard of, and that's the Thai Burma Railway. 
made infamous by the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai and one particularly horrific section of that railway known as Hellfire Pass. The Allied soldiers who were captured after the fall of Singapore initially went to Changi Prison and first up the conditions were quite reasonable. And while they were there, obviously, the war continued on. Japanese forces continued pushing across the Pacific seizing many key locations to provide them with the needed resources. One resource-rich country which they wanted to get hold of was India. To launch their attack on India, men and supplies needed to be accumulated in Burma. While the US Navy was recovering from the attack at Pearl Harbor, this was easily accomplished by sea. But after the Battle of Midway, there was no longer a safe option, and so the Japanese powers that be decided to build a railway from Thailand into Burma. 415 kilometres long, requiring 600 bridges, as well as viaducts, embankments and cuttings. And except for a single 50 kilometre stretch, it would all have to be hacked out of the jungle. It would be a massive undertaking requiring enormous amounts of labour. Fortunately for the Japanese, the Geneva Convention permitted the use of POWs for work. Not that they really cared about the convention anyway. They had thousands of POWs they could use to build a railway, many of whom were sitting around in Changi Prison. Not only that, but they had close to 200,000 locals who were either enslaved or offered money to work on the railway. And so 60,000 mostly British, Dutch and Australian soldiers were split between roughly 100 remote camps where they would each build a section of the railway. Of the Asian labourers, nearly half would die during the construction and more than one quarter of the Allied POWs would also die. The work itself was dangerous, working on rickety bamboo scaffolding, blasting, and all of that kind of thing. But the main causes of death were starvation, disease, and basically just being worked to exhaustion. On a little more, on little more than a handful of rice gruel, they were forced to work from dawn and often long into the night, and any minor infractions would result in a severe beating and a cruel punishment. The jungle was rife with malaria, meaning those already weakened men had little defence against the disease. The unsanitary conditions led to dysentery, cholera, and all sorts of tropical nasties. And as far as the Japanese guards were concerned, if a man couldn't work, he didn't eat. So getting sick was often a death sentence. The most horrific section of this railway was Hellfire Pass. Hellfire Pass was a cutting in the Thailand part of the railway. It was only 75 metres long, so roughly one and a half Olympic swimming pools in length, and it was dug down to a depth of about 25 metres. The work was done largely by hand. To drill a hole in the rock, one man would hold a metal shaft known as a drill, and a second man would hit the end of the drill with an 8 to 10 pound hammer. They would work for as long as it took to punch a hole deep enough to take an explosive charge. Now, you keep in mind that these blokes are already starving and sick. An eight pound hammer would have been a heavy weight to be throwing around all day, but if they stopped, they'd get beaten. When the holes were drilled, explosives were fired, creating tons of rubble that obviously needed to be removed. And so it went on day after day, either drilling or hauling heavy rocks, but it wasn't proceeding quickly enough for the Japanese. The crews laying the tracks were fast approaching, and so from April to August 1943, the speedo period occurred. Normally the drillers were expected to drill one metre per day. Now they were expected to drill two to three metres per day. They were forced to work anywhere up to 18 hours a day and of course, if the pace slowed, they were severely punished. The exact numbers of dead from Hellfire Pass are unknown, but estimates are that about 700 POWs lost their lives on this one section of railway. And keep in mind, it's only 75 metres long and cost 700 lives. So what is the relevance to Sandakan? Well, nothing directly, but when you hear the conditions on the railway, you'd think, mate, you couldn't get much worse than the Thai-Burma railway. But I reckon if those blokes knew what awaited the other Changi POWs at Sandakan, they'd consider themselves almost lucky. Most of what we know about the events at Sandakan POW camp comes from the testimony of survivors during the war crimes trials after the war. And the reason we know so little is because of the 2,500 Allied prisoners of war who were sent to Sandakan, only six survived. Six out of 2,500. And they only survived because they managed to escape. 
The troops who would be sent to Sandakan were taken from the POW camp at Changi. They were to be shipped to the island of Borneo where they would construct an airfield on the northeastern side of the island, just outside Sandakan. Consider the size of Borneo. If you're looking at a world map, and only when you see this, you come to appreciate just how important this island was. Firstly, it's big. Plenty of room to stockpile men and stores for future dispatch. But more important than its size is its location. There is nothing between Borneo and Malaya. If you control both those points, you control the shipping lane. If you also control the Philippines, then you've basically got the entire South China Sea under control. So it's no surprise that the Japanese wanted an airstrip from which they could launch surveillance and attack aircraft. And so the POWs were sent forth. According to one survivor, Private Keith Botterill of the 2nd 19th Battalion, conditions were initially pretty good as far as POW camps go. He wrote, quote, We had it easy the first 12 months. I reckon only half a dozen died at the top. Sure, we had to work on the drone, and we used to get flogged, but we had plenty of food and cigarettes. We actually had a canteen in the prison camp. We were getting 10 cents a day. I think a coconut was about one cent, a turtle egg one cent, and a fair-sized banana went for a cent. It was a good camp, end quote. But then things started to change. Formers and guards were sent to the camp and the brutality began. Warrant Officer William Stightwich said, quote, My gang would be working all right and then we would be suddenly told to stop. The men would then be stood with their arms outstretched horizontally, shoulder high, facing the sun without hats. The guards would be formed into two sections, one standing back with rifles and the others doing the actual beating. They would walk along the back of us and smack us underneath the arms, across the ribs and on the back. They would give each man a couple of bashes. If they whimpered or flinched, they would get a bit more. End quote. And then there was the cage. The cage was 130 centimetres by 170 centimetres, so about 4 feet by 5 feet in the old money. They couldn't stand up in it and it could never, never fully stretch out. During the day, they sat at attention, except for the two occasions each day when the guards would drag them out for a beating. The first three days were without water, and then the guards would force them to drink so much that they'd vomit. The first week, they were without food, and after that, they only received half rations. Keith Botterwall was there in there for 40 days. In July of 1943, all, about, all but eight of the officers were removed and taken to Kuching, on the far side of the island. It was felt by the Japanese that this would remove any threat of the prisoners rebelling against their treatment. This went on throughout 19, 1943 and 1944, but by the time 1945 rocked around, the Japanese were dri- being driven back through the islands. The airfield, which the POWs had suffered so much to construct, was attacked by Allied bombers. I don't think the POWs would have minded too much, though. The Japanese, seeing the writing on the wall, decided to abandon the airfield and head inland to Renau, about 260 kilometers away. They figured they'd take the prisoners with them, mostly to carry the equipment that the Japanese wouldn't. The men who were chosen for this first march were considered the fittest of men in the camp. But according to Bill Stipewich, quote, none of them were fit. They were all suffering from beriberi and malnutrition. They were all issued by the Japs with crude rubber boots, but nobody could wear them. Some of them had their own boots, but more than 60% of them were bootless, end quote. 455 men left Sanakin in a number of groups on the first march. They carried enough rations for four days with the understanding that they would receive they would receive further rations from Japanese supply dumps along the way. But those dumps failed to materialise and so the men had to scrounge what they could from the surrounding bush. Keith Botterill was in the third group and their trek took 17 days. There were 50 men in his group, but only 37 made it to Renau. 
He testified at the trial, stating, quote, I've seen men shot and bayoneted to death because they could not keep up with the party. We climbed this mountain about 30 miles out from Renau, and we lost five men on that mountain in half a day. They shot five of them because they couldn't continue, but I just kept plodding along. It was a dense jungle. I was heartbroken, but I thought there was safety in numbers. I just kept going. Although I did not see the bodies of any men who had been shot in the parties that had gone before. Often, I could smell them. End quote. Private William Moxham was with the 7th group. The 69th group only went as far as Pagnaton because there wasn't enough accommodation for them at Renau. He wrote, quote, Men from my own party could not go on. Boto was the first place where we actually had to leave anyone. They remained there at this Jap dump. At the next place, at the bottom of a big hill, we, were, we left two more men. Later we heard shots and we thought the two men must have been shot. In all of my dealings with the Japanese, I have never seen any one of our chaps after they had been left with the Japs. Once you stopped, you stopped for good. End quote. A special squad of Japanese troops was sent out along the path they had followed. Their job was to simply locate any of the POWs who had fallen behind and who were still alive. One of the Japanese troops in this squad testified before the tribunal. Quote, Two soldiers were the ones who had been detailed to come at the rear and they may have received the orders you referred directly from Abe. About two or three hours after leaving Boto, one PRW became very very ill indeed, and Sato, without telling me anything about it, took him into the jungle and bayoneted him to death. Endo and Sato told me that 16 had died on the way from Sandakan to Boto, but they did not have any details of the deaths, end quote. So you get the idea. These starved, diseased men were forced to march through heavy jungle, carrying the Japanese troop supplies, and if they couldn't keep up, they were killed. The first five groups lost... 70 out of 265 men who left Senekin. The four groups, which ended up at Pagnaton, fed even worse. They were basically left to die. The guards administered regular beatings and within one month, only 68 out of the 138 who made it that far was left. At the end of March, 50 to 60 of these men were marched onwards to Renau. Only 46 made it. But that wasn't the end of it for the first marches. Having got to Renau, more died from starvation and disease, but others were made to carry supplies of rice back to Pagnaton for future groups of Japanese soldiers and POWs. These treks were a nine-day round trip, and just like on the march and who couldn't make it, were simply disposed of. By the end of June, there were only six left at Renau out of the 450 men who had left Sanaken. But the conditions for those left behind at Sanaken were hardly any better. Those men continued to be beaten, starved, and inflicted with a number of tropical diseases. There was plenty of food and medicine to treat these men, but the Japanese withheld it. Between February and May, 885 men died at the Sandakin camp. In April, the Japanese felt that an Allied invasion of Borneo was imminent, so they decided to remove the remaining prisoners from Sandakin. Allied air raids had actually hit the airfield and town, causing heavy damage. Whatever was left, the Japanese burnt before another 530 prisoners were assembled into groups for the march to Renau. Any who were too sick to move were simply left to die in the ruins of Sanakin. Dick Braithwaite recorded the events of this march. He stated, quote, It was a one-way trip when we started to hear shots, and you felt there was no hope for anyone who fell out, end quote. Nelson Short spoke of how men who could go no further would say their farewells. And if blokes just couldn't go on, we shook hands with them and said, you know, hope everything's all right. But they knew what was going to happen. There was nothing you could do. You just had to keep yourself going, more or less survival of the fittest, end quote. 
Within the first eight days, 113 men died and a further 35 were killed in a group massacre a few days later. On the 27th of June, 26 days after leaving Sandakan, only 183 men out of the 530 who marched out of Sandakan reached Renau. One of the survivors of this march was Gunnar Owen Campbell. Knowing that their only chance of survival was to escape, Campbell and four other men, Private Edward Skinner, Private Keith Clauston, Corporal Ted Emmett and Private Sidney Webber made a dash for freedom. During an air raid, while their guards were distracted, the five men made a dash for the bush. They slid down a high embankment and hid among the thick bracken until the column moved on. They then began to push through the thick undergrowth. After four days, Ted Skinner couldn't go any further. Campbell elected to stay with Skinner to help him get back into some sort of condition. The others headed on. Despite suffering from malaria and beriberi, Campbell worked his way through the jungle, gathering food and water to bring back to Skinner. But Skinner obviously felt that he had no chance anyway and that he was ruining Campbell's chances of survival. Upon returning from a gathering expedition, Campbell found that Skinner had cut his own throat. Campbell caught up with the others shortly afterward and Costin was unable to move further due to dysentery and malaria. In desperation, Weber, Emmett and Campbell decided to flag a passing native canoe. Unfortunately, the canoe had a Japanese soldier hiding in the bottom and he subsequently shot Weber and Emmett. Campbell returned to Costin, but three days later, Costin also died. Campbell was now alone in a strange country, starving, diseased and delirious with Japanese soldiers potentially around every tree. Fortunately, he found a river and a native canoe being operated by two locals who were from an anti-Japanese guerrilla group. He was cared for and eventually delivered to Allied medical staff. When he was examined, he weighed only 44 kilograms. Four of those kilograms were from the fluid built up in his body from beriberi. So in essence, he weighed only 40 kilos. I'm not sure what that translates to pounds, but I can tell you now that's he was very, very skinny. That That's 80 pounds. It's, it's basically a skeleton wrapped in skin at that stage. Yeah, 88 yeah. pounds is alarming. And that, and that was just the physical scars that they found. Uh, there's no question the mental toll that would have had on, on Campbell as well. Dick Braithwaite also managed to escape on this second march. On the morning of their departure, he was so sick with malaria that his mates had to hold him up for the roll call. During the march, he managed to slip under a log and avoid detection. When all was clear, he pushed into the swamp, but in his weakened state, he only got about halfway across before he had to stop. He sat against a log and resigned himself to the fact that he was going to die. Then, after about a half an hour, the thought of dying in that swamp angered him so much that in his own words, he charged like a bull through the scrub. He was fortunate enough to stumble across a friendly local who delivered him to an allied hospital. An Australian colonel came to visit and told him they were going to rescue his friends. Braithwaite says he just rolled on his side, faced the wall, and cried like a baby. You'll be too late, he told the colonel. Keith Botterill, Nelson Short, William Moxham, and Andy Anderson all managed to escape from Renal. They had all reached the point that death was imminent, so it was a choice of dying in the camp or as free men, relatively in the jungle. They hid in a cave not far from the camp. During their escape, they ran into a local man named Bringa, who they had no choice but to trust. It turned out that Bringa was true to his word and he took as much care of the men as he could. Unfortunately, Anderson was too far gone and he died of dysentery and was buried in the jungle. 
The remaining three men were destined to follow Anderson, but Baringa had heard of an Australian unit operating behind the lines in Borneo. On the 15th of August, the day the Japanese surrendered, the three men were told to make their way toward, toward this unit. It was still dangerous, as not all Japanese had received notice of the surrender, and even some of those who did chose to ignore it. But eventually, as they were taking a break in a clearing, they heard movement in the jungle. Nelson Short described the moment. We said, hello, what's this? Is this Japs coming to get us? They've taken us to the Japs or what? Sure enough, it was our blokes. We look up and there are these big six-footers, Z-Force. Boy, oh boy, all in greens. They had these stretches and they shot them down. Quote, have a cup of tea, some biscuits. You could see the state we were in. This is it. Boy, oh boy, this is really it. I cried and they all cried. It was wonderful. I'll never forget it. We all sat down and had a cup of tea together, end quote. Uh, as a bit of shameless self-promotion, if you're wondering who Z-Force was, I did an episode on them for the Australian Military History Podcast. When you're finished here, go and check it out. You guys, you guys say Z instead of Z? <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That's the only way to say it. You guys are so weird over in It's the, not. In <laughs> this is Z-Force. <laughs> but... <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Get off <laughs> Well, You silly I'm... prison island. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you guys so much. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Well, I'm definitely going to check that uh, episode out. I'm very interested to learn who uh, the Zed Force was. Yeah, it's the first I've heard of them. And I, I, I've, uh, what episode did you do that? Because I've listened to a few of your episodes Ooh, at this point, honestly. Um, oh, that's a while ago. Uh, where are we at? Hang on. I think uh, episode 18. Okay, I'm coming up on that one. I'm coming up yeah. on that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. They, they were basically our first special special forces, um, SAS uh, commander. Oh, sort of, wow. Sort of um, yeah. grew from, from them. Yeah, they, they were amazing. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. And I, and I gotta say, your your long tan series, especially episode two, when you brought yeah. in the actual radio audio, yeah. oh my god, Warwick, that I was, was wow! I'm proud of that one. You I should back to that be. one. I went, holy shit, that's good. I like that one. That was amazing. I don't know yeah. where you got your hands on that, but when when you heard that one commander talking on the radio, and then you heard the yeah. artillery and machine gun fire, and then his voice yeah. stopped, and another guy stepped in and had to take yeah. over because the other guy got shot and killed. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, the, the actual um, audio, that's on YouTube. And ah. I, I, sometimes, I sometimes just sit down and listen to it and just – it blows me away that oh. <laughs> those bullets in the background—they're the real thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah, it sends a shiver up my spine every time I hear it. Yeah, no shit. That guy was literally cut off mid-sentence. And then what I really liked was you came back and you were like, "Hey, for those of you that that were maybe not too clear on what the audio was, here's yeah. here's here's what it is." And it yeah. just, oh man, that episode, yeah. that that series was so good. Yeah, I was, I was quite happy, quite happy with that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, exceptional anyway. work. Yeah, thank you. A third and final march was ordered for approximately 75 of the 250 men who had been left behind at Sandakan. There were no survivors of this march, but later investigations showed that none had made it any further than 50 kilometres. Of the remaining men at Sandakan, when the second march left, only 80 to 90 were still alive by the end of June 
The Japanese knew their war was over and that questions would be asked. The Allies dis- discovered the emaciated prisoners. They adopted a dead men tell no tales approach. On the 13th of July, 23 men were taken into the jungle and shot. By August, there were only 28 men still alive. Yashitoro Goto was a guard during these last days and testified at the tribunal. He said, quote, All of the POWs left were too sick to fend for themselves. We did not cook for the POWs at this stage. Those who were able to crawl about were caring for the others. These POWs either died from lack of care or starvation, being too weak to eat. The last died about the 15th of August, end quote. What he didn't say was how the last man died. A Chinese labourer saw what happened. Quote, His legs were covered with ulcers. He was a tall, thin, dark man with a long face and was naked apart from a loincloth. One morning at 7am, I saw him taken to a place where there was a trench like a drain. I climbed up a rubber tree and saw what happened. Fifteen Japs with spades were already at the spot. More Jumi made the man kneel down and tied a black cloth over his eyes. He did not say anything or make any protest. He was so weak that his hands were not tied. Morojumi cut his head off with one with one sword stroke. Morojumi pushed the body into the drain with his feet. Their head had dropped into the drain. The other Japs threw in some dirt, covered the remains, and returned to the camp. End quote. And so died the last remaining survivor of Sandakan on, on the day the Japanese army surrendered. So the events at Sandakan were a tragedy. But what makes it even more devastating is that way back in January of 1945, intelligence had been received at Allied headquarters concerning a POW camp at Sandakan, and a plan was, re- was devised to launch a rescue mission, codenamed Operation Kingfisher. It was top secret, so there's not a lot of information available. It was so secret, in fact, that it's not even mentioned when you search the Australian War Memorial database. It's difficult to determine exactly when or why the operation was abandoned. Reports had been received about the move to Renau, and so, thinking the enemy camp deserted, they decided just to bomb it instead. But, as we know, at that stage there were still a few hundred prisoners there. If the operation had gone ahead, even just to confirm if the camp was actually empty, then at least those men may have been saved. After receiving intelligence about the camp at Renau, why was no operation devised to rescue those men? We may never know. What a shit show, dude. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to find all the information on it, and it's also so top secret, covered up, and yeah. Yeah, I it's can just it's imagine. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it's embarrassing. that's, that's why yeah. it must have been covered up, because uh, yeah, the idea that they possibly could have saved those men is just... Yeah, mm. like was it because there was a lack of resources? We don't know, but yeah, I, I tried to precious. find something to say why it was why it was cancelled, yeah. and there, there's nothing. <laughs> okay, like there's no even not even any record in the um, War Memorial website, which yeah, it's got records of all sorts of little little insignificant bits yeah. and pieces, but there's mm-hmm. nothing on that. No, it's just, fucking unreal. Yeah, I was, I was getting more and more pissed off as I was researching that bit. <laughs> Yeah, people in offices a long way from the war making stupid decisions. Yeah, and that's Which, just that's the way of it, right? It still happens today. <laughs> oh, does it ever? Although it is very important to remember the war crimes committed by the Imperial Japanese Army, and not to make light of their crimes, there was little they could do on an individual level in protest of the orders of their superiors. It was their lives or the lives of the POWs. 
Ueno Itsuyoshi wrote An End to a War, a Japanese soldier's experience of the 1945 death marches of North Borneo. Dick Braithwaite, an adjunct professor at Southern Cross University's School of Tourism and Hospitality Management, wrote the book's introduction. Professor Braithwaite was the son of one of only six Australian prisoners of war who survived the horrors of the death march from Sandakan to Renau. He contacted the author's family after learning about the Japanese memoir and with assistance from the university's Japan-Australian Center, arranged for it to be translated. According to Professor Braithwaite, the book is a significant addition to the accounts of the death marches, which claim the lives of 641 British and 1,787 Australian prisoners of war. Additionally, it is believed that more than 8,500 Japanese died while moving troops through Borneo. Professor Braithwaite writes in his introduction, quote, it is clear that the most terrible atrocities were visited upon Allied POWs and many local people by the Japanese forces of occupation on northern Borneo. Ueno provides a detailed account of the death marches and an insight into the workings of the Japanese army. Ueno writes The Japanese military is a strange institution. Once the officers issued an order, whether it was reasonable or not, any objection or opinions raised by the lower ranks were rejected even if they were more appropriate and practical. That must be how they keep their dignity in the higher ranks. This attitude, which led to the abandoning of emergency rations, reflected the impossibility of the death march. End quote. His account also provides a glimpse of the difficulties he faced on his return home after the war, an experience shared by many surviving prisoners of war. And remembering his mother, Ueno writes, quote, all my purpose in life after coming back from the war was to give her some return for all her great efforts over such a long time. I lost my purpose for living when I lost her. But my terribly war-torn heart was gradually brought back to a normal state because of the need to survive in a ruthless post-war society. Time has overcome the pain. Now, more than 40 years have passed since my wartime drama. Looking back at my life, I have nothing to say but how cruel war is, end quote. Ueno makes clear that even among the Japanese, realization of the cruelty of Sandakan was not lost. Only 38 prisoners were still alive in Renau by the end of July as a result of a lack of food and harsh Japanese treatment. All were too weak and ill to perform any job. Thus, it was decided to execute any survivors that were still alive. The guards executed them in August, and be up to 12 days after the war's end on August 14th. A total of 16% of North Borneo's population is thought to have perished during the three years of Japanese occupation. Only six Australian service members were able to flee in total. As stated earlier, Gunner Owen Campbell and Bombardier Richard Braithwaite were able to flee into the forest during the second marches, where they were helped by natives and later rescued by Allied forces. Along with assistance from the locals, who fed them and kept them hidden from the Japanese until the conclusion of the war, Private Nelson Short, Warrant Officer William Stipewich, Private Keith Botterill, and Lance Bombardier William Moxham were able to flee from Manal during the month of July. Only four of the six survivors, Stipewich, Botterill, Short, and Campbell, were able to overcome the effects of their ordeal in order to testify in various war crimes trials in both Tokyo and Rabaul. Eyewitness reports of the crimes and atrocities committed were made available to the world. On April 6, 1946, Captain Hoshijima was hanged after being found guilty of war crimes. In addition, Captain Takakua and Captain Watanabe Genzo, who served as his second in command, were found guilty of killing and massacring prisoners of war. 
on 6 April 1946 and 16 March 1946, respectively. They were hanged and shot. Well, so that is all we have on the Senecan death marches. Again, such a horrific uh, time in history, uh, particularly for British Commonwealth forces, but also Australians. Um, the amount of deaths that came of the marches, but also the, the fall of Singapore was just incredibly tragic. Um, I know, especially for my family um, as well, considering my great-granduncle was a part of that. <laughs> it's one of those things you wish never would have happened. It has, so mm. it needs to be remembered. The, the men can't speak for themselves anymore, so somebody has mm. to. It's an extremely heavy episode. Um, I, I, as I think you both know, and probably a lot of the listeners, I'm very, I'm very partial to Japanese culture and the Japanese people, but um, this was a hard one. Um, I am angry. Yeah, that's, that's generally the feeling that uh, comes up when and talk about these sorts of things. Angry and yeah. sad. Sad that humans can do that to each other, regardless of race or time or whatever. Yeah. That we, we have that yeah. ability in us. It's, uh, I, yeah. I I think when I first learned of the Sanakin death marches, um, like when my family told me that my great-granduncle was um, amongst those that died, I was just in disbelief. And this was all about around the time when I started learning about Nazi Germany and the Holocaust and stuff like that. And it was just, and I'm still trying to comprehend um, that kind of cruelty even today. Um, it, it's so hard to come to terms with that, how horrible people can be. Yeah, yeah, it's the hardest part. Yeah, yeah. Once again, thank you so much for joining us for another episode, Warwick. It has been an absolute pleasure, as always. Please, listeners, make me. sure to <laughs> thank you for joining us. Um, please, listeners, make sure to check out Warwick's pod, Australian Military History Pod. The link to his socials will be in the episode description. He has some really good content there specific to Australian military history. And honestly, you won't be able to find anything like it anywhere else. Aww. <laughs> it's true it's true oh shucks <laughs> I, I love your podcast i do i listen to it uh, thank you don't forget to tune in next week for our 20th episode where we will take a wild trip into the united states army's chemical core edgewood arsenal drug experiments thank you for listening and remember to keep your hard tack dry <laughs>